Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your holiness. God, that we would come in reverence, that we would come with love, that we would come with joy, bowing before your holiness, your righteousness, but also overjoyed that we are accepted as your children if we have put our trust in you. God, I pray that as we look to your word, give us hearts to understand your word, give us hearts to obey it and to love it. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our Lord, Rock, and Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever noticed that what attracts you to someone early on in a relationship can be the very thing that annoys you later on in the relationship? I was talking to a young man a couple years ago about this young lady that he was interested in. And I asked him, what attracts you about this young lady? And he said, she is interested in things I'm not interested in. And so she encourages me to do things I never would otherwise do. Well, a couple years later, very recently, he was expressing some frustration that this girl always wants me to do things I don't want to do, and I just want to stay at home. The very things that are attracted, uh, that we're attracted to early on in the relationship can be the very things that we're annoyed and frustrated with later on in the relationship. This happens with human relationships, but have you ever thought that the very thing can happen with our relationship to God? that the very things that we should worship and praise about God can also be the very attributes of God that can bother us or frustrate us or maybe even anger us. It might sound ridiculous, but it's really not that far-fetched because we know from the prophet Jonah, a true believer in Yahweh God, that the very things that he should have worshipped God for were also the very things that caused him to burn with anger. And so we see this in the book of Jonah, and specifically in Jonah chapter 4. What causes Jonah to steam and burn with anger? It's nothing less than the very grace and mercy of God. Jonah is angry with God's grace. How did Jonah get to this point? How did he get to a point where he's shaking his fist angrily at God's grace? We're going to see from Jonah chapter 4 that the seeds of his anger are rooted in the soil of his self-centeredness. He has a self-centered heart, and that causes him to have a very angry heart towards God. Are we angry with God in some way? Have we ever expressed anger towards God? Perhaps we haven't visibly expressed anger towards God, but if we do some internal examination, perhaps we can detect a self-centered heart, just like Jonah's heart. And that should cause us to be on high alert because a self-centered heart that goes unchecked can bring us to places we might never thought we could go, just like Jonah landed himself in. So we'll be studying Jonah chapter 4 today, but before we do, we're going to go parasailing. 
We're going to go parasailing through Jonah chapter 1, Jonah chapter 2, and Jonah chapter 3, and then we're going to dip down and we're going to sink and swim in the text of Jonah chapter 4 when we get there. But let's go parasailing over Jonah chapter 1, 2, and 3 first. So the prophet Jonah, he lives during the time of the reign of King Jeroboam II. King Jeroboam II, he reigns from 793 to 753 B.C., we don't know this from the book of Jonah itself, but we know this from 2 Kings chapter 14, that King Jeroboam II, he reigns during this time, and this is the same time during the life and the ministry of the prophet Jonah. And so, during the life of Jonah and during the reign of King Jeroboam II, there is a rising world superpower, which is the empire of Assyria. Assyria is north of the northern kingdom of Israel, and Assyria is the empire on the rise, and they now have their eyes locked on the northern kingdom of Israel. And so during the life and ministry of Jonah, the main concern and one of the main threats towards the northern kingdom of Israel would have been this empire Assyria that was north of them. And so while Jonah is alive, the Assyrian exile, which did eventually take place in 722 B.C., that would have been less than 100 years away, perhaps even 30 or 40 years away. And so when Jonah is alive, the main concern for Israel is how do they maintain their independence and their power from the empire of Assyria. Now, the military capital of Assyria was none other than the city of Nineveh. Nineveh is the massive military capital of Assyria, known for its evil and for its brutality. We have historical records that the Ninevites would torture and kill their captives by literally filleting them alive. Awful brutality, awful evilness. And this is what causes the weight and the impact of God's command in Jonah 1 verse 1 to land so heavily on Jonah's heart. In Jonah 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, great in terms of its size, great in terms of its sin, and cry out against this city, because their wickedness has come before me. God commanded Jonah to preach against the Ninevites for the purpose of providing an opportunity of repentance. And this is the command that Jonah bitterly resists. His response in chapter 1, verse 3 is very interesting. But Jonah got up to flee from the presence of the Lord. Here's a theological truth that we learn from Jonah chapter 1. Here's the map that we see from Nineveh and Assyria at the top, Jerusalem there down towards the bottom. Here's the theological truth we learn from Jonah chapter 1. You can run, but you can't hide from God. Jonah tries to flee and run from the presence of God. He tries to run. He goes down to Joppa. He runs onto a ship. He runs below deck. He tries to run to Tarshish, which is most likely located in Spain. And so he tries to take a detour where God is trying to take him all the way up to uh, Nineveh and Assyria there, you see that on your right. He tries to go all the way to Spain. He's trying to flee from the presence of God. Now, Jonah is a prophet of God. He knows he can't theologically run away from God's presence. Jonah is most likely very familiar with the doctrine that is in the Psalms. 
that God is omnipresent and you can't flee from the presence of God. Jonah knows this intellectually. But here's something we learn about Jonah throughout the course of the book. Jonah has a heart problem, not a head problem. And he tries to flee from the presence of God. But we learn, you can run, but you can't hide from God. Are we on the run from God in some way? We can run, but we can't hide. Just as God persistently pursued Jonah, he will persistently pursue us if we're a child of God and on the run to bring us back to himself. That's Jonah chapter 1. In Jonah chapter 2, we learn this theological truth. No matter how low you go, God can still deliver you from the depths. So Jonah is swallowed by a great fish, and he's taken into the depths of the ocean, and he's taken to his lowest point physically that he's ever been. In the words of Jonah, he's taken to the base of the mountains. But not only is he taken to his lowest point physically, Jonah is also at his lowest point spiritually. He's been running from God. He's been resisting the commands of God. And now he's at a point where he cries out to God. It's very interesting from Jonah chapter 2. If I were to give you the text of Jonah chapter 2 without the title of Jonah 2 at the top, you would think you were reading a psalm. It's very close to a psalm. This prayer of Jonah crying out to God. And he says, and God heard my cry, even from the depths. And in the words of Jonah, chapter 2, verse 9, salvation is from the Lord. God delivers Jonah from the depths, causes the fish to spit Jonah out, vomit him out on dry ground. We learn, no matter how low you go, spiritually, God can still deliver you from the depths. So Jonah chapter 1, you can run, but you can't hide from God. Jonah 2, no matter how low you go, God delivers you from the depths. Jonah chapter 3, we learn this truth. God delivers those who truly repent and turn from their wicked ways. Jonah 3, Jonah arrives at Nineveh, and he preaches against the city of Nineveh, warning that there's judgment about to come. And through the grace of God, through the preaching of Jonah, the Ninevites repent, and they turn from their wicked ways. And Jonah chapter 3, verse 6, is a very interesting picture of what true repentance looks like in the life of the king of Nineveh. Jonah 3, verse 6, And when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, removed his robe from himself, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the dust. The king of Nineveh exchanged his robe for sackcloth. And he exchanged a throne for a pile of dust. This is a picture of true repentance. Where we disrobe ourselves of our self-righteousness. And humbly confess to God. Turn from our wicked ways. And then, in verse 10 of chapter 3, verse 10 acts as a bridge between chapter 3 and chapter 4. Verse 10, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their evil way. Then God relented of the disaster which he had declared he would bring on them. So he did not do it. Praise God. God delivers them because they have repented and turned from their wicked ways. But Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. 
but it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. What angered Jonah? God did not rain down judgment as he said he would on Nineveh. There is grace and there is mercy, but there's no justice. And this angers Jonah. And as we will see, the seeds of his anger are rooted in the soil of his self-centered heart. A self-centered heart can lead to a heart that is angry towards God. So question number one, as we go through Jonah chapter four, do we care more about our desires than praising God's character? Chapter four, verse one, but it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. Then he prayed to the Lord and said, please Lord, was this not what I said when I was still in my own country? Therefore, in anticipation of this, anticipation of the repentance that would come to the Ninevites and the grace that God would send to them, in anticipation of this, I fled to Tarshish since I knew. You can hear the disgust in his voice. Because I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in mercy, and one who relents of disaster. So now, Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. But the Lord said, do you have a good reason to be angry? Jonah despises that God does not bring the judgment he said he would upon the Ninevites. Jonah thinks that the Ninevites, well, sure, they've repented, but they still have to pay. There still has to be some sort of justice. The scales have to be set right. And we learn something from Jonah here. This intense emotional reaction that he has to the grace that is shown to the Ninevites, we have to assume Jonah has been daydreaming of the justice he would like to see brought upon the Ninevites. We know this has to be the case because this is the very reason he runs away from God's command in Jonah chapter 1 because he knows that God is a compassionate God and if they did repent, then there would be mercy and there would be compassion and he doesn't want to see that. He has been stewing in his mind over and over what he would like to see happen to the Ninevites for their evil and their sin. If I could use my sanctification sanctified imagination here. It's perhaps that he's thinking the Ninevites, they have separated family and friends by taking people into captivity. I can't wait until they are separated from their family and their friends and separated from the very presence of God when they are judged by an almighty God. The Ninevites, they have physically abused their captives. I can't wait till they experience the physical and spiritual judgment of God on judgment day. Family and friends have been separated. People have been abused by the hand of the Ninevites. It's time they get justice. This is what he is meditating on, and this is why he's so angry when his desires and his daydreams don't come to fruition. Because the unthinkable happens. They do repent, and God drops the charges. And there's grace. 
personal question for us. Have we ever daydreamed about people getting what we think they deserve? Have we ever daydreamed about people getting what we think they should deserve? If I could just be very honest with you, I have been at those moments where I have daydreamed about people getting what I think they should deserve, where even Christians that will be in God's eternal presence for all eternity, even Christians that perhaps have annoyed me or irritated me or upset me in some way, I've daydreamed about the thought of, oh, I haven't thought, oh, I can't wait until they get to God's presence and rejoice in God's presence. No, I've thought, I can't wait till they get to God's presence. And they finally get scolded by God. They realize how wrong and stupid they were at that moment that they irritated me. I've thought about that. Perhaps we have some way as well, where we've daydreamed about what we'd love to see happen to people under the justice of God. It's not just that we want people to repent. We might have that thought in our mind, but we still want them to feel and to experience God's justice in some way. If I could say very seriously, For Jonah, when he looks at the Ninevites, he looks at them with disgust and with a scowl on his face. And in the mind and the heart of Jonah, this is what he's thinking. He looks at the Ninevites and he thinks, go to hell. That might sound shocking, but that's exactly what he's thinking. That's why he's so angered. He's so caught up in his personal desires and his daydreams of what he'd like to see happen and what he'd like to see God do, that when God changes the script on him, he becomes angry. And he prays here in verse 2. He prayed to God, which, which by the way, is is a movement of of sanctification for Jonah. In chapter 1, he ran away from God's presence. Now he's at least praying to God. But he prays to God, and he says, this is why I ran away. This is what I said when I was still in my own country. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in mercy, one who relents disaster. This prayer is very shocking because what Jonah says about God is very true. But this has been kind of the chorus of the whole Old Testament. If you think of the Old Testament as a song, the chorus that the Old Testament sings over and over again is that God is a gracious, compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in mercy. This is what Moses has relied on when he calls out to God, God, don't bring judgment upon the Israelites because this is the God you are. This is what David praises God for when he's in his sin. This is what we see over and over in the Old Testament. God is a gracious, compassionate God. And they worship God for this, but this is the very thing that Jonah complains about and that angers him and frustrates him. I knew this. You hear the disgust in his voice. I knew you were this type of God, and this is what I didn't want to see happen. Translation, Jonah is saying, God, you have not been God the way I would have been God. And in verse 3, he says, I might as well die. How can I live in a world where people like the Ninevites are saved? 
We can think, does not Jonah remember what happened in Jonah 2? Does he not remember the grace that he has been shown? Does this not soften his heart? We can think, does he forget what has happened? I don't think Jonah's forgotten what's happened. This, what happens in Jonah chapter 2 was not long ago. It's not like he's forgotten the grace that God has shown him. But I suspect that for Jonah, he recognizes he's a sinner. He resisted a command of God. He ran the other way. But, but now he's doing what God wants him to do. He acknowledges he's a sinner. But more than likely, he sees himself as a sinner. But he sees the Ninevites as sinners. Jonah, he ran away from God's command at once, but he came back around. But the Ninevites, they killed people. He's a sinner. They're sinners. And so how can he reconcile that God will show grace to them? Here's something we need to understand. If we have a shallow view of our sin, we will also have a very shallow view of God's grace. But until we come to the point of recognizing I am just as much a sinner and just as much lost as anyone else. And I have received amazing grace from God. It's only then when we have a deep view of our sin that we will have a high view of God's grace and worship him for that. And he complains to God, God, I knew you were slow to anger. But Jonah, do you really want God to be quick to anger? Do you really want a God who is quick to anger? Because if he was, Jonah would end at Jonah chapter 1. And there'd be no Jonah chapter 2 and no Jonah chapter 3 and no no Jonah chapter 4. If you really want a God who's quick to anger, then you're asking that for yourself as well. And God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? We get no reply from Jonah, but the answer is no. It is not right for Jonah to be angry, and it's not right for us to be angry as well. When God sovereignly gives grace to those he gives grace to. I think of Romans chapter 9, verse 18. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires, Who are you, you foolish person who answers back to God? Who are we to talk back to God when God chooses to give grace even to those we think we least deserve it? Do we care more about our desires than praising God's very character? Second question. Do we care more about our comfort than resting in God's sovereignty. Verse 5. And Jonah left the city and sat down east of it. There he made a shelter for himself and sat down under it in the shade until he could see what would happen to the city. So the Lord God designated a plant and it grew up over Jonah to be shade over his head to relieve him of his discomfort. And Jonah was overjoyed about the plant. But God designated a worm when dawn came the next day, and it attacked the plant, and it withered. And when the sun came up, God designated a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on Jonah's head so that he became faint, and he begged with all his soul to die, saying, Death is better to me than life. So Jonah finds a comfortable spot. 
He grabs his peanuts, his nachos, and his soda, and he sits down, and he's just waiting to see what will happen. Maybe God will still come through. Maybe God will still bring down justice. He sits, he sits and he looks over the city, and he watches what will happen. Maybe God will still do what Jonah wants to see happen. And I love what God does. God knows that Jonah is beyond the point of being able to reason with him. He's beyond the point in his anger. You can't have a rational discussion with him. And so God does not come to Jonah, and he doesn't try to theologically explain his grace. He doesn't try to explain his sovereignty. And he said, well, this is why I'm showing grace to the Ninevites. This is why you should be okay with this. God doesn't do that. What God does is he brings an illustration into the life of Jonah to try to wake Jonah up and to see what's really happening. And so he causes this plant to grow over Jonah. And we see, mark this down, this is the first time and the only time in the whole book of Jonah that Jonah is happy. A plant grows over Jonah and it provides shade for him. And finally he is overjoyed. The literal translation, back in verse 1 when he's angry with God, the literal translation of that is Jonah is uh, angry with a great anger. And then here, when he's overjoyed about the plant, the literal translation is he was overjoyed with a great joy. And so he sees God's grace, anger. He has shade now. He's happy. So petty on the part of Jonah. But he's finally happy for the first time. He's not happy when God calls him and gives him the privilege to preach to a a city of 120,000 people. He is not happy when God delivers him from the belly of a fish. He's not happy when he sees 120,000 people repent and receive God's grace. He's happy when instead of feeling like it's 100 degrees, it now feels like 90 degrees. And he's happy at last. But then something interesting happens. God brings a worm with just the right hearty appetite. And the worm chews the plant and it withers. Literal translation being here, the plant was destroyed. Again, very interesting. This is the only thing that's destroyed in the book of Jonah. Jonah's been waiting, chapter after chapter, waiting for destruction to come to the Ninevites, but the only thing that's destroyed is not a city, but a plant. And Jonah thinks, now, how can I live in a world where people like the Ninevites are saved, and how can I live in a world where God destroys plants that bring me comfort? I might as well die. I just wish throughout the book of Jonah that Jonah would sometimes be a little more emotionally transparent, don't you? (laughs) The the, the NIV says, when Jonah says, I'm just so angry, I wish I was dead. Well, tell us how you really feel, Jonah. (laughs) Here's the lesson for us. We are not here on this planet to be comfortable God has not put us here to be physically or emotionally comfortable. He has put us here to be on mission for God. For Jonah, he is so caught up with his physical and his emotional comfort and his own self-centered heart, and he's so 
much more caught up with that than, being, than caring about the, the spiritual well-being of 120,000 people. And like it or not, that's a pretty accurate representation of our hearts as well. Where we are so caught up with our physical and emotional comfort versus caring about the, the spiritual well-being of the people around us. We think, well, I don't want judgment to come upon a city like Jonah. Well, that might be the case, but do we care more about our, our comfort than going the, the extra mile to take the gospel to the ends of the street or to the ends of the earth if God would call us to do so? Do we care more about accumulating stuff that makes us feel comfortable rather than reflecting the grace of God to those that we feel might not deserve it? These are the questions we should ask. Do we care more about our comfort than sharing the grace of God and reflecting the grace of God to others? Question for us, what's our shade-bearing plant? What's your shade-bearing plant? Something that gives you perhaps physical and emotional comfort. It might not be a bad thing in itself. Just like Jonah, it might actually be something that God gives to you as a gift. But what's your shade-bearing plant that you are this comfort in your life that you're, you're beginning to idolize that if God were to, to take it away from you, you would be angry? A comfort in your life that's causing you to not look outward and take the gospel to the ends of the street or to the ends of the earth. Know this, Jonah's self-centered heart causes him to be angry, and that puts us on high alert that self-centered people are the most unhappy people on the planet because we never get our way. Folks, God, if he has chosen you to be his child, if he has chosen you to be adopted into his family, to receive his grace, he calls us then to be on mission for God, which when we're on mission for God, it calls us to make sacrifices and not merely to idolize comfort in our life. Do we care more about our comfort than resting in God's sovereignty? And then final question for us, do we care more about our stuff than joining God's mission? Verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you have a good reason to be angry about the plant? And he said, I have good reason to be angry, even to the point of death. And the Lord said, you had compassion on the plant for which you did not work and which you did not cause to grow, which came up overnight and perished overnight. Should I not also have compassion on Nineveh, the great city in which you are, more than 120,000 people who do not know the difference between their right hand and their left, as well as many animals. So God makes a lesser to a greater comparison. He illustrates to Jonah. He says, Jonah, you care about this plant, this plant that you did not make. You care about this plant, which is temporary. You care about this plant, which does not have an eternal destiny. And God says, do I not have the right to care about people that I created in my own image? Do I not have the right to care about people who are not temporary? Do I not have the right to care about people who do have an eternal destiny? You care about the plant, Jonah. I care about these people. 
He invites Jonah to be on mission with him, to join his mission. You care about the plants. I care about these people. And not only the people, but, but also the animals. Not that animals receive salvation in the sense of we, that we do, but if God had brought down judgment upon the city of Nineveh, it would have included the judgment and the destruction of the animals as well. And in God's kindness, he doesn't want to bring judgment on the animals either. This is God's kindness. He says, should I not care about these people who do not know their right hand from their left? Meaning they have no moral compass. They don't know what's spiritually and morally right or wrong. They need to be told. I care about these people and I care about the animals as well. And that's how Jonah ends. It might feel uncompleted. It might feel open-ended to us. You know, what happens to Jonah? Does he turn around? What's the end of the story here? And the very fact that there's an open ending is kind of the main point. Because the main point is not what happens to Jonah. Now we can, we can make some pretty good assumptions. We're not going to spend a long time here because it's not the main point of the story. But I suspect that Jonah does repent eventually. Because ask ourselves this question. Who wrote Jonah? Who wrote the book of, book of Jonah, including Jonah chapter 2, where Jonah prays in the belly of a fish, something only Jonah and the fish would have heard? Who writes down this prayer? Of course, could God have revealed this to another prophet or another scribe to write this down? Absolutely, that could have happened. But I suspect that Jonah's the one who writes this down, which tells us, I believe Jonah did repent eventually because he does not put himself in a pretty life in the book of Jonah. But again, that's not the main point of the story. The main point of the story is not what happens to Jonah. The main point of the story is putting on display the grace and the compassion and the love of God. The main point of the story is putting on display the sovereignty of God in grace and in salvation. Highlighting to us the great grace of God which sometimes in our humanness and in our sinfulness might make us angry. It's putting on display the character of God and also the main point of the story when it leaves this open ending here, what happens to Jonah, it's to get us looking in the mirror and looking at ourselves and thinking, and what happens to me? Is there a Jonah that lurks inside my heart? A bitter, angry, self-centered Jonah is there a Jonah in my heart that I need to repent before God? Again, God is a compassionate God. We see that in the first part of Jonah 4. God is a God who is sovereign. We see that in the second part. And so God invites us, join my mission. Reflect my grace to others. Share the gospel with others. Have a heart that is passionate about reflecting the grace of God just as God would reflect it to others. This is God inviting us to join him on his mission, but so often we're caught up in our self-centeredness, caught up in our own comfort. And Jonah gets us looking at ourselves. Is there self-centeredness that lurks in my heart, bitterness or anger? Ask yourself these questions. 
just like Jonah, is there a nation right now that more than praying for God's grace upon the nation and more than praying that they would repent, in your heart you wish God would just annihilate the nation? Is there a people group that you would prefer to see God's judgment rather than God's grace? Now we're going to get very personal. Is there a political party you would prefer to see God's judgment rather than God's grace? Is there a person in our life that we'd love to see that they get what they deserve rather than receive God's mercy, grace, and compassion? Is there someone in our life where we struggle to forgive them? And if so, we should pray to God. This is a very good prayer to have in our hearts. God, help me to be patient with, you fill in the blank, help me to be patient with this person just as you were patient towards the Ninevites. God, help me to show grace to this person just as you showed grace to the Ninevites. Help me, God, to join your mission, to love your character, to worship you for your character, and to reflect that to others in my heart. Before we conclude the book of Jonah, one more question we should ask. How do we reconcile this fact that there isn't justice against the Ninevites? We have been singing songs all morning about the holiness of God, the justice of God, and in light of God's holiness, sin is seen in all of its ugliness. How do we reconcile that there is not justice against the Ninevites? Well, there isn't justice against the Ninevites immediately. But 750 years later, there was a baby born in Bethlehem. And he lived the life we never could. And he died the death absorbing the wrath that the Ninevites deserved and that I deserve and that you deserve. There was justice against the Ninevites and it was poured out on the Son of God on the cross. Here's something we need to remember as we try to reconcile God's grace with his justice. God always punishes every sin either in hell for those who do not repent or on the cross for those that do. When we look to the cross, it humbles us in our sin. When we look to the cross, it makes us worship God's grace. When we look to the cross, it should motivate us to share God's grace with others, even those that don't deserve it, just like us. When we look to the cross, it crushes our self-centered hearts and makes us worship God's amazing grace. Would you pray with me? Dear God, we are humbled by the message of Jonah here that puts on display your your loving, gracious character. God, I pray that we would have hearts to love you for who you are. And God, help us in our sin and our bitterness and in our anger. May we 
internally reflect on our hearts and take before you any sin that is in our hearts that is drawing, putting a wedge in between our relationship with you or perhaps a wedge in between our relationship with others. And I pray that we would reflect your grace to others, worshiping you for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.